In the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. This is Rob in the Highlands Bunker Studio. Uh, with us, as always, is Carl. He'll make sure it sounds as good as it possibly can. Uh, and also with me today uh, is uh, an OG, another OG. A man who has uh, stories about politics going back, about... Uh, Legal stuff and gone back real estate radio, um, and he's also been a big uh, a big supporter of a lot of um, our political movements. Uh, Joe Connor, Joe, how are good, you? Uh, good afternoon. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank good. you for uh, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, before we get to sort of the story and then some of the issue work, um, I do want to mention right off the top. This won't come out until afterwards, but. Uh, I hope that it's looked at as part of the part of the whole work. Uh, Marie Pinckney and Mimi Brown are doing a two-day symposium online about criminal justice issues. Um, there'll be a lot of like policy people, a lot of experts. Um, I assume there'll also be um, citizens and, and regular people giving their testimony as well. Um, but I know that was something that you wanted to support, and I want to make sure we circle back to that in the, at, in the end. Well, just just to. By involvement, I'm going to be on the listening session panel at 1 o'clock on Wednesday for that uh, with Kendra McDowell and, uh, God, I don't know who else. Uh, a guy I saw at the thing, he's got an interesting name, Tim Tim Fast or Tim Tim Does Something <laughs> Fast or something like that. Oh, the, ACL, he, the guy from the ACLU was at the ACLU's table. He was sitting Neef. to my right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's got... I have his card. I, he had his T-shirt on with how he calls himself, and he's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, but I've never met the gentleman, but he looked like fun the other night. So I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Cool. Uh, and we'll be doing that with Maria and Mimi on Wednesday afternoon. Nice. Well, give us give us your your background and your. I mean, you are a person who can really give us your Delaware uh, bona fides. I mean, you well, you have them deep. I have them. I was born six blocks from here in the in the hospital they blew up in the 70s. Me too. And. Uh, Grew up in the city. I was born at uh, in the ninth, what we call the ninth ward. Now I guess we call it the north side uh, on West Twenty Sixth Street. And then we moved to uh, what's now called Byard Square. These places have names that weren't the same when I was when I was a kid. Over uh, off of Sycamore Street, went to St. Elizabeth, went to Slazianum. Uh, my father was a legacy of Slazianum, which caused it to take two and a half years for me to get expelled, but I managed. And uh, graduated from Brandywine High School, went to went to the University of Delaware. My political awakening was a thing called the Vietnam War and a draft number of 34. And that taught me how to be a resistor. And I succeeded at being a resistor. I was, uh, my first political activities were uh, anti-war activities. The biggest one I was involved in when I was young happened in November of 69. It was called the moratorium. And... 500,000 of my closest friends and I did a march, and then we hung out on the ellipse and screamed at Nixon for a while. Um, then we went into 72, and I was uh, the Delaware labor guy for McGovern. Uh, I hung out with and traveled around with the current president, but I had my own thing in that campaign. I was doing the McGovern campaign. And then life went on from there. I spent 10 years organizing unions. One of my first organizing campaigns that was successful was right up the street here at the nursing home that's now called Kentmere. Yep. Uh, we, won a, we won an NRB election there. It was called Home of Merciful Rest. Uh, and we got a contract, actually, for the uh, nurses, aides, and support staff. And that happened in 46 years ago, back in 1976. 76. Yeah. So you you have a labor background, yeah. But you're 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 known as uh, as the real estate guy. So how'd that shift happen? Well, in 1980, I had been in the union business for about 10 years, uh, eight years. I zigged when I should have zagged with the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Supported the wrong guy in an internal election. Ended up out on my ass, and then I uh, went to work for a, a, a rogue Teamster outfit out in New York. The uh, it was called Amalgamated Local 355. We organized also nursing homes, car dealer shops, things of that nature. And uh, I decided that I wanted to live a longer life. Uh, these guys were, even made me nervous. 
So I got out of the union business. I bounced around a while, got sober in 84 the first time, uh, got into the advertising business, ended up at the beach running a radio station. Guy sold it without telling me. And that's what got me in the real estate business. I got in the real estate business in 1987. Spent my first 20 years selling sand on the beach and had a great life down there. Raised my child. Um, and in the early 2000s, uh, the shit started to hit the fan. And my second life started after the explosion. And yeah. We're, I mean, and we're here to talk about the explosion. Yeah. I mean, let's. <laughs> uh, I, I, I guess I'll sort of set it up. I mean, however you sort of want to set up um, how you uh, got into a situation where you were uh, up, up, up against the criminal justice system. Uh, and uh, I know something that I've been telling people to look at uh, is the stories that Lex Wilson has been running about um, the treatment of people in that are incarcerated, especially now in Sussex, in Georgetown and Sussex, but also, um, also in, in Kent County and here in Wilmington. Well, in, in my case, it was simple. Uh, Starting in 1984, when I discovered sobriety, my life got a whole lot better, and I was able to do really well. And I was, I would say, fairly successful in the real estate business at the beach. Uh, I was making good money. I, I was well-known. Uh, but in the early 2000s, I was chair of the Governor's Council on Substance Abuse and Mental Health. I was a member of the Delaware Real Estate Commission, appointed by two different governors to those jobs. And, you know, life was good, but... I slid back into my addiction and sliding back into my addiction is what, what added, what, what, what led to all the rest of the things that happened. But the, the bottom line is that once I slid back into my addiction, it was just a matter of time uh, before something was going to happen. And it did. Interestingly, I was in a kind of a hidden relapse for about three years. I was chair of the governor's council on substance abuse and mental health and drinking at night. I was, you know, doing these things and, and using substances at night. And finally, it all caught up with me. Uh, first, it caught up financially because you tend to rob Peter and pay Paul. I got myself involved in kind of a midlife crisis. I had gotten divorced, and I opened up a couple of art galleries because I thought that would be cool. And I had one in Rehoboth and two in Philly. And basically, I was blowing my blowing my real estate success money on my, my fun businesses and wasn't paying attention and keeping, if you have an addiction issue and you've got money, uh, having the money isn't necessarily a blessing because you start putting it places where it shouldn't go and, and all that. So by 2006, I had myself in a financial pickle. I was making plenty of money, but I was spending more than I was making. And, you know, I was trying to keep all those balls bouncing. And I got into a situation in August of 76, August of 06, excuse me, where I uh, had been out with friends in Newcastle County, and I was heading back to the beach on a Sunday night, and uh, I was driving a uh, a big old Ford sedan, but it wasn't any match for a big old Silverado, and I ran a light at uh, 896 and 40, heading for the Summit Bridge, and I was dead for a little while, and they had to cut me out of the car, and I was in the hospital for three weeks, and I was charged with a DUI. And that's where I started manipulating the system and using people. I had good legal counsel. I did everything I needed to do. I still had, you know, I still had resources. And unfortunately, I did not really get sober again. I tried, but it didn't succeed. I really didn't get sober again. It wasn't helped by the fact that I was able to get almost unlimited narcotics because of all the, the hip damage and the bone damage and the rib damage and all that that I'd suffered. So I continued to go along, and by the spring of 2007, uh, there were no more exits. And I filed uh, Chapter chapter 7 in April or so, late April of 2007. And it was a prodigious Chapter 7. It was My Chapter 7 was more money than I had ever had in my possession at one time. <laughs> I mean, you might as well go big. I went down for a million six and a half in a Chapter 7, signed over my house. So depression had begun to seep back in. I was uh, not paying attention to my finances. I was just I was just a mess. And I was over in D.C. at a realtor's event, and I got a call from my lawyer that we were going to have an issue uh, over the financial stuff, and I needed to come home right away and deal with it. And I headed home, and 
This was uh, May 16th of 2007, which is now my sobriety date. And I was driving over the Bay Bridge, and I got just to the downstroke of the Bay Bridge by Annapolis, got out of the car, got part the way up to the railing, and some people were beeping at me, and I turned around to wonder why they were beeping at me in my adult state. And the jumping off the bridge kind of went out of my mind. I got back in the car and continued to head home. Got within a mile of the house. Uh, if you're familiar with the Bethany area, uh, if you're coming in, Route 26 comes into Bethany from, uh, from the Route 113 area in from Dagsboro, Frankfurt. And I was about a mile away from my house when I got lit up from behind. I decided, you know, the suicide thing is probably the best idea. So I engaged in a chase with the guy. Uh, it went on for about eight miles, got to some level of speed in the 90s. They put out uh, stop sticks down almost to the uh, Selbyville border, and I realized I was going to have to stop. So, and, and I don't remember all of this directly, but I, I remember aiming at a tree. I was in a bronc in, in an Explorer, and I aimed at a tree, and I aimed directly at the tree. I hit the gas, and... I should have hit the tree, but I did not calculate for Sussex County topography, which all the country roads have ditches. Gully there. So I went in the gully instead of hitting the tree, rolled a couple times, came to a stop, and here I was back in the in the back of an ambulance and off to uh, Peninsula, Peninsula Regional Hospital in Salisbury, which was the beginning of my sobriety and also the beginning of my legal issues. Long story short, uh, people rallied around me. I mean, I had I had a lot of consequences to face, but people rallied around me. And first, uh, some folks were nice enough to get me some psychiatric treatment. And my insurance was bad by then, but I was chair of the governor's council. So one of the local facilities took me in on a scholarship. And I got about 10 days of psychiatric treatment. And it was determined that, you know, I was a candidate for another shot of uh, substance abuse rehab, which I certainly agreed with at the time. So I went off to a place called Miermont, uh, up behind the, uh, up in Glen Mills, uh, behind the Granite Run Mall, and um, nice, very nice uh, rehab facility. And I got a scholarship there. And by now it is late June of 2007, and I had a trial date. Came back to Wilmington. I was actually got a part-time gig at the National Association for the Mentally Ill over on Fourth uh, Street. And I was fully prepared to face what I had to face. And in September of 2007, I started 22 months, 10 days, and 11 hours journey through the Department of Corrections system. I spent the uh, majority of my time in, in, in months, I spent about 13 months in SCI, uh, pretty much all in one building, which is called the Key Building or the uh, PI Building. It's known as one or the other. And it's a minimum security dormitory type uh, arrangement. And basically, you know, it's living in a community. But the community is not normal. The community has these people that run it from the outside, and the community has the folks that really run it that live there. And as I've often said, I, I was living in the probably one of the few black majority uh, operations of uh, a society that, that's out there. And I managed to do okay. Number one, because I had a lot of uh, familiarity with the people I was working with. I had been in the advocacy and the addiction business for many years. And number two, uh, my survival instinct was back. And incarceration was not not the not what I expected it to be, but it was definitely uh, a challenge. And my skin color and my age and my ability to get along uh, with, with my co-inhabitants co added together made life much easier for Joe Connor than the average inmate at SCI by a long shot. Uh, when bad things happened, I always got the, the benefit of the doubt. I was always generally treated by, with respect by the staff. And I got along well with my with my cohorts. Main one of the reasons I got along well with my cohorts is I understood. I learned the system. I, I learned what was used for money, what 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 it was to what what favors meant, what favors didn't mean, uh, 
What did I have to offer? And I had a lot to offer. I did a lot of writing for folks. I did a lot of preparation of documents for people. Uh, and in return, you know, I would, somebody would keep an eye on me as well because I was in bad physical shape the entire time I was there. Uh, my hip was not back. I wasn't walking well. But they gave me a cane. And I had a cane for about 11 of the 13 months that I was in the PI building. No black guys had a cane. Not even old ones. Yeah, my my first question, or the first thing that popped in my mind, I should say, when you when you explained sort of uh, there was a more of a dormitory setting that I guess you know for for mid range, you know, I, I can't imagine being in um, Sussex anyway. It doesn't look like a very pleasant place, no matter where you stay. But I wonder what like what your experience was, or what you saw there, and and whether or not you. Um, you know, you had any taste of um, sort of the more uh, where there was more security, we'll say. Well, yeah, I, I spent my my journey through the system was at multiple facilities, the 13 months in the almost all in the PI building. But about a month of that was in what they call pretrial. Um, it, Delaware's prison system is what's called unitary. There's no county jails. There's no local jails. Everybody goes to the same place. But the people that would normally be in like a county jail in other states, uh, there are there are substitutes for that in the Delaware system, one of which is pretrial. And Sussex's pretrial is probably the worst, uh, the one of the worst uh, situations I was in. I was there about six weeks. That was four to a two-person cell. Um, and there was no commissary available in the pretrial area. And the, uh, the, 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 the uh, propensity for violence was higher. Uh, the violence and the things that occurred in the PI building were more hidden. You think in terms of a of a uh, a big meeting room, uh, one big open room uh, with a loft above the top, and that everything's metal, and that there's no there's no carpet, there's nothing to to, to muffle sound. Everything is metal. The steps are metal. The beds are metal. The floors are bare. And think of a hundred guys in a, in a space like that, about about the size of a small gym, not a full size gym, like a small gym. And the way it was patrolled, for lack of a better term, is the the the, the COs pretty much never went upstairs unless they had to. So most of what went on, the winemaking and and a lot of the violence, would happen on the second level. I was unable to get to the second level, and I was given a bunk, a, a, a lower bunk by the TV on the first level. You know, so once again, here I am, you know, privileged, and I didn't have to get my own food because I didn't walk well. So I would sit at the table, and guys would bring me food. So I, I got out of so much shit, and, but I still did, had to do the four o'clock in the morning. I had a lot of medication. The way you get medication in prison is not much fun. You, you, you basically it's hurry up and wait. And the morning medication is you got to go over to another building outside and over to another building uh, to get your meds. And that building was the infirmary and also the hole. So there were, there were multiple things that went on in, in, in that building. Uh, plenty of fights. Uh, there was a lot of conflict. I was involved in my fair share of conflict. Uh, most of the conflict I was involved in had to do with, uh, I don't know how to explain it. Had to do with guys is thinking that I could do stuff that I couldn't do. You know, I, I had developed the reputation of somebody that could maybe help somebody, and some guys would just want stuff that wasn't possible, and sometimes they didn't like that. So there was tension in that area. But then I had other guys that would kind of back me up, and then there were guys that I broke a fair number of rules. <laughs> And I don't know how much I want to get into it, but... I mean, I guess the statute of limitations... Yeah, pretty much. It's been 10, 11 years. But there were a couple of guys that needed to to be moved out of the the space. And one of the ways you move somebody out of the space is to to cause them to be in violation so that they'll go to the next level. And on more than one occasion, I conspired with the fellows that were my group to get so-and-so gone. And I was pretty good at that. Well, I mean, I would look at that as sort of like a self-preservation thing. I mean, you know, it's not a pleasant thing to have to do. But, uh, you know, if you're protecting yourself from violence or violence to the people who are protecting you, I think it's perfectly natural to try to do something 
to keep your keep your friends safe. Well, so that'll that'll fast forward us to the second half of my incarceration. The first half of my incarceration was just plain old jail. I was in a, wasn't in any programs. I was able to negotiate. They have uh, the prison system has two levels of substance abuse treatment. Key which is level five regular jail for about a 15 month program where you're in regular jail. My lawyer negotiated me out of that one, but I had to do crest, which is the second level of, uh, of, of the uh, treatment, treatment programs inside, inside of the system. And it's, it's known as a level four program, which means it's supposedly work release. It isn't, I was locked down in crest until the last six weeks, but in October of 07, I moved. And just to clear, clarify, you did get treatment uh, prior to adjudic- this all being adjudicated yeah, yeah. later in the year. Yeah. You had been uh, in, in different levels of treatment already, so you had at least afforded, was, afforded yourself what you could before yeah. you went in. I had. I was on pretty solid ground sobriety-wise when I went off to jail, uh, which if I hadn't been, I don't think I would have done as well. And. I got through the first 13 months. There was no real treatment. AA came in. I went to it. Uh, there were a couple of little things, but there was no formal programming. But my formal programming started in October of uh, 07 and went until the end of July of, uh, or oh, October of 08 and went until the end of July of 09 when I got out. And the Crest program was in uh, two levels. There was the first level, which took place for me in what was called the... Uh, the Central Violation of Probation Building, which is on the Smyrna campus. So I got moved to Smyrna. That building has been closed down subsequently. It's by the, I don't know how much you know about the Smyrna campus of the, of the prison. I only know but, uh, what's what I've read in the, re, in the recounting of the uprising from a few on, years On ago. the outside of the main fence, there's a building called the Central Violation of Probation. And then right down the street from that is where they train the police dogs for the state. So the, the cool thing about being in that facility is I could look out and watch the dogs being trained um, in the mornings. In any event, the, when I got to that facility, I was in a program. And then it became really political and a lot of privilege. And then there was backlash to the privilege. And it was, since I knew a whole lot about recovery, I would get myself in trouble by being too smart. And I finally figured out that I don't want to be too smart anymore. I just want to pretend I don't know any more than anybody else and just get through this. And, you know, that's kind of the way I, I handled it. But once again, I had friends, and they had, they had leadership positions in, in, these, in these programs. And I, I shied away from the leadership positions, but I worked with guys that were in the leadership positions to kind of mentor them. And I have lifelong friends from Crest. I have guys that are still my friends. One's an executive chef. Um, and a couple more are doing doing quite well. Others not so much. Uh, but I I got through the Crest program there, um, and sadly they don't pay the counselors any money, so the counselors were not that great. But they also weren't making hardly any money, um, and they were taking people with lower levels of training because people that wanted to make money wouldn't take the jobs. So the programs weren't weren't the greatest, but they were what they were. And that led me to the Plumber Center. And we all know about the Plumber Center. I got to the Plumber Center in February. Yep, right about now. In February of 09. And that was where I ended things up. That was a trip. Because there were people coming and going. The, the smuggling was always... I didn't get into like the smuggling and the money and all that kind of stuff. Just, I don't think it's a... I don't want to really talk about it too much, but this, well, I think people understand this, um, that the, the 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 things that go on. Sort of like I said before, I think people understand that there are things that go on to keep people, um, especially when they're not getting the help that they need. But even when they are, um, just for sort of survival. Um, well, so, but you don't have to get into it. I, the, I think the, people get that. The, you know, plumber is porous because people are going in and out. But people think you're everybody's going in and out. Most people in a place like the Plumber Center are not leaving. Uh, you have to get to a certain level and close to the end before you're actually out. I got there in February, and I didn't go outside for the first time until late April. And then from May until the end of July, I had a part-time gig. And getting into it, I did, I did start to, my advocacy role and my advocacy gene 
uh, started to really come out at me in the Plumber Center because there was a tremendous amount of inequity of who was allowed to go out and seek jobs, what kind of jobs were they allowed to seek, and if they missed a bus coming back, uh, punishment is meted out, and was that being done in any kind of a, a fair manner? And the answer to all those questions was no. So here I was. Now, I was working for a buddy of mine uh, at a real estate office up on Concord Pike, uh, writing reports. Uh, there's a thing called on foreclosed houses. You write these reports for the for the bank to how much is the house worth. So my buddy was in that part of the business. So I was writing these reports, and I was getting out every day. I had access to email. I I, I got my the same Gmail I have now. I created uh, while I was on work release, and uh, I began to uh, advocate louder and deal deal with my friends at the, the public defender's office. And, you know, I've had mentors too. We'll get into that in a minute. But anyway, I started to do some advocacy and the advocacy came to the attention because I was writing letters to emails to people in, in power. And that came to the attention of the bureaucrats at, at, at uh, DOC and came to the attention of the assistant warden at Plummer who didn't like me at that point to be polite. And it became a test of wills, and I didn't give a shit anymore because I knew I would get out on a certain date. Well, she escalated the damn thing by f making a calculation I was supposed to get out on July 23rd or so, 22nd, 23rd. And I get back from work, and there's a note in my thing that your, your uh, time has been recalculated because of this, this, and this, and we're not going to let you out until September 9th instead of July 23rd. Well, at that point, I had already gotten accommodation at an Oxford house, had my shit moved into the Oxford house, and this would have been a major hassle. So I went into overdrive at that point, and I got a state representative who will remain nameless, but a good old friend of mine on the phone and said, I haven't asked you for anything since I've been here. I want out. You know, my deal was this day. And I didn't get out on the 23rd. I didn't get out on the 24th. But on Friday the 31st, I got a call that it was worked out and I would get released. So I figured, okay, I'm stuck here for one more weekend and I'll get out the first of the week. So I'm laying in my bunk on Friday night, the 31st of July, 2009, when the... Uh, PA goes off, Connor to the office, bring your shit, pack your shit. Well, pack your shit is release. 10 o'clock on a Friday night, nobody gets released after dark. They kicked me out of there. Their last way to get me was to put me out on Market Street at 10 o'clock on a Friday night with no money, no ability to make a phone call, and two garbage bags full of stuff. That's how I got released. And I was lucky enough to get a quarter together and get on the phone with my cousin who I was talking to, and she, she came and got me, and I got into the Oxford House. And that was the beginning of the probationary period. Probation is a modern version of hell. Level three probation is like the squid games in real life. Late for this, if you're not home by 10 o'clock, if you don't do this, if you don't go there, if you don't show up with the money you owe every week, if you don't do, there's like 20, 25 easy ways to fuck it up. And I was able, because of my circumstances, to generally get through it. I had a couple of close moments, but to generally get through it. The average black or brown person who's on level three probation, has no money, might not have a place to live, might not be able to live with somebody that's not, there's all these restrictions on who you can live with and where you can live. Uh, so you've got all these people roaming the city on level three probation that might be trying to do the right thing. And then you have this whole cadre of people running around West Center City and the East Side and South Bridge and Newcastle Avenue going out to pluck these guys off. And it is not anything about, this is where the rubber really meets the road, where the system is so fucked up. The, the probation system is not about success. It's about gotcha. Straight up. 
and everybody knows it. And if you're a black or brown person and you're in this gotcha system, you know it's a gotcha system. This is where, this is, if anything needs to be fixed and fixed now, it's the probation and parole system. Yeah, I mean, I was disappointed. You say, and, and I think you're right. I, I think you're absolutely right. Everybody knows Everybody knows what it is. I mean, there's only so much you can look away from, especially if you're sort of involved in it in some fashion. And just last term, the General Assembly made, uh, made more cash bail uh, that we took away. Now, they've, they've, they've returned it for, for some crimes for the same thing. Just... Just because uh, it's supposed to be punitive at every Well, to rewind a little bit, you know, back to when I got arrested, I was charged with multiple felonies, multiple felonies. It wasn't just one. It was several. There was no question that I was going to get OR. When I walked in and sat down in front of the magistrate, it was clear that I was going to get OR. If they actually knew my financial condition... They wouldn't have gave me OR. They didn't really care about my financial condition. I still had a driver's license that said I lived in a wealthy area. I still could go to that house. I hadn't quite lost it yet. I still had, you know, the accoutrement of respectability. I got OR, no questions asked. If I had been a black kid, I would have been an SCI right away, straight up. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we've also talked on the other end of it in probation Many times I had a really interesting conversation with the guy who wrote a long essay for Current Affairs magazine who was a social worker in Western Massachusetts. And uh, he wrote a really long essay about homelessness and about couch surfing and how that's a place. And you mentioned it. That's a place where guys get caught up all the time because you can't you can't with certain people you you can't live with. There's people you can't be with. And you can't get a housing voucher. You can't get affordable housing. You can't live with these other people. You can't, you know, maybe you don't have a car, you know. So, yeah, it's it's, it's complete. There's no, there's no, the idea is to pluck people out. Part of the advantage that I had, and this is a big deal, is I very easily got a job while I was incarcerated working for my buddy. Even more, there were two people that Rest their souls are both dead. Without them, I would not have gotten the start in life coming out that I would have gotten. One was Mel Slawick, who you may or may not know. Uh, Mel Slawick was a former county executive, uh, got in a little trouble back in the 70s, did a little time in jail. But he's an old friend of mine, and he's a social worker, and he worked for about 25 years after he got out of his issues as, uh, as an investigator at the uh, public defender's office, and he was president of the Addictions Coalition of Delaware. Mel Slawick was my mentor from the time I got to jail. He would come anytime he came to Sussex uh, for work. He would get to get a lawyer's room and bring me over, and we would chat. He told me I'd have a job with the Addictions Coalition when I got out, and the day I got out, I had one. The other person was Wendell Howe. Do you know who Wendell Howe was? No. Wendell Howe was a the first African-American superintendent of schools in the city of Wilmington. He was the superintendent of schools during during DSEG. Uh, Great man. And unfortunately, Wendell Howe had addictions issues, and there was a famous case where he got involved in an assault situation at the train station about 35 years ago, and he ended up in jail. And Wendell Howe was the executive director of the uh, Addictions Coalition. If it weren't for those two guys setting me up at the Addictions Coalition, my my whole my whole reintegration into society would not have gone nearly as well as it did. And I am forever grateful to those two people and to lots of other people who stepped up and helped me in one way or another uh, when I was coming back. Yes. A lot of people ran away from me, particularly when it happens a second time. I had this accident. That 10 months later, it all blew up. I can't tell you how many people ran away from me. But the people that stuck with me and helped me, uh, I will never forget. Yeah. Let me, let, me, let me ask you a question based on this topic. Because, you know, and, and you're very eloquent in, in explaining, you know, the support you got, um, how you were able to get in and get... Um, uh, mental health service, addiction services, um, help when you were incarcerated as well, um, and then coming out um, with work and support, mentorship, that type of thing. Um, based, but based on your connections, based on the people you knew and who knew you, right? Um, and 
I think everybody in Delaware, because it's very small, sort of understands how that works. Not on that level, not in the severe situation you were in, but understands how connections connections sort of uh, grease the wheels. In, in yeah, certain I mean, sense. I'll give you a quick example real quick. Say what you want about the family of the president, but Bo Biden was attorney general and all this shit happened to me. He couldn't fix it, didn't do anything to fix it but he made it less bad. He was very empathetic. Didn't help me in the trial. It didn't help me in the sentencing. Uh, but then Bo also sought me out after I got out. So that's one example of somebody that just gave me some moral support. Yeah, and I wonder how what we need to do if it's a matter of winning people's hearts and minds or it's a matter, it's always a matter of financial, you know, figuring out where we're going to prioritize our money. But what is keeping us from thinking about criminal justice and giving everybody the opportunity as if they had a personal contact, as if they were friends with the attorney general? We need more Marie or, Pinckney's and less members of the cop cabal. Yes. We need more. We need more. I worked with Mimi Brown at Connections. Okay. And I worked with her again when I got out. We need more people that understand and have empathy than people that are criminal justice to many people is about retribution and all the other things. You don't reform somebody by, by kicking them while they're down. You don't reform somebody by punishing them for bullshit. Yeah. Okay. Cause all that does is harden the heart and make people more angry and more, more drives people more to the, well, to it's the hopeless. Edge. If you have nowhere to go, sort of like in the couch surfing example or the, you know, you, you were, you were mentioning a lot of uh, things when people were trying to transition out. If you don't have anything, that hopelessness can lead you anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I got out, I was making minimum wage and then I was getting 20 hours a week at a decent amount, a decent hourly wage at the addictions coalition, but it was only getting paid for 20 hours. But that gave me money. Didn't give me a lot of money, but it gave me money so I could pay my bills. Then I had a real estate career that I didn't think I would ever see again. And I started the process of getting my license back. And I had two different attorneys that basically went to the mat for me and never got a dime who argued a case where I went to get my license back and they said no because I had abandoned my license. And this is just an example. And this one lawyer who shall remain nameless because I don't know that he wants to be credited. He appealed that to the Superior Court and said, how can he have abandoned his license and you are shirking your responsibility as a regulator not to discipline a licensee. And that went to Superior Court and a, a, a smart judge agreed. And I got my license back by being punished. I went down, I was, they, they, they ruled that yes, he still had a license and they ruled that I needed to answer for my bad conduct in front of the real estate commission. I did. They found that everything I did was stupid and addiction related and none of it was related to my ethics or honesty as, an, as a real estate broker. But they said, we can't ignore this. And they suspended me for a year. So in 2010, I knew I was getting my license back, but I still had to go another year uh, before I could go back to work. But all of that was extremely complicated and could, would not have been done for most people. And once again, it is an example of the privilege that I had as I went through this system. Yeah, and I and I think what you said is perfect about people forget about some of these political fights and they kind of put them to the side, but we're not going to get to the change in attitude and trying to get everybody that service and that like just treat people as human beings and try to get them back on their feet in whatever fashion. Um, you know, you just you know you what? should you should get that for being a human being. You know, what I for... think about a lot lately. You know the story of us getting pointed a gun out at the Republican. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that in the, yeah. in, the, in the fun half. <laughs> uh, anyway, that happened. Yeah. And, and uh, I was with Kendra and a bunch of other people. And I literally had this dude point a gun at me. And it took two weeks to get him arrested. And they didn't want to arrest him and all this other stuff. And finally, he got four years. And as much as... That guy deserved retribution for what he did. It, it never ceases to amaze me how the system is 
can be unequal on all sides. I know that guy pointed a gun at me. I know he shouldn't have pointed a gun at me. I know he probably should have got some jail time. But I'm thinking, was that a four-year offense? When you look at what happened in Minnesota the other day, and that woman got two years, less than two years. So, you know, the criminal justice system is like a, uh, is a, is an, un, an unequal roulette wheel, even for people that would be perceived as being politically connected. Why did that guy get four years? Was it because he was connected to the wacko right-wing people? You know, I don't think somebody should get punished extra for being a wacko politically. <laughs> yeah, no, and I and I agree. I think people do know that, and we're on the same page with that. Like, I don't like anybody getting arrested. I, I, I'm, I'm not somebody who, like, like the people, I'll give you an example. A lot of people talk about the people who, like, charge the Capitol. Um, you know, for the most part, it was just people walking in behind other people who did some level of violence. But I, I don't want a lot of people going to jail for a long no, time. No, I don't because either. As, as you said, it doesn't, doesn't really help anybody. I don't either. It's, not, it's, not, a, it's not a, a net good. Do you know what I mean? It's not a net. No, it's not. And, you know, as a society, if we want to get, like, philosophical about it, when I had my radio show, which we talked about to some extent, and I did that for four years on a right-wing radio station. I made a shitload of money selling houses every Friday afternoon. Uh, between that and my gimmick for selling houses, I made a lot of money. And I went on that program during the Iraq War, uh, during the Dixie Chicks uh, thing. Burned. Uh, Burned the album. Yeah, and all that stuff. And I was able to have a racontorial little back and forth with the guy that had the show who was a right-wing guy and we became personal friends and i would we would talk about houses and then he would insult me about some political thing or another and you know we spent a lot of time talking about john atkins because that was during that period oh, when yeah. john was having uh, his bumper car stuff and you know little did i know making fun of john atkins what was going to happen to me two years later <laughs> yeah, yeah well that's the other thing too which I mean, you leads can have me connections, to be more but tolerant then you have, but then you have negative connections too yeah. everybody's which, looking to settle a score with you which leads me to be more tolerant of people yeah i got a lot of negative connections i mean you know i spent 11 years in the union business uh total uh, i've been on the wrong end of uh of, of hammers guns uh I've been involved in all kinds of, I've got stories. And, you know, the reality is, you know, for what it's worth, you all saw the Irishman. One of the first guys I worked with the first time I was involved in a strike was Frank Sheeran. Yeah, you might know my pop. My pop was a, uh, he was a teamster in the 70s, oh. 80s, but then he was because it was a UPS driver. I didn't know any of the you rank didn't know and the file, team, team I didn't know rank and file drivers. I knew union guys. And Frank... Frank ran local 326, and my union ran, did the supermarkets. So when we would strike, we had two major strikes while I was there. And um, when we would strike the supermarkets, we needed muscle, and we also needed support because if you don't send the stuff to the store, you can't sell the stuff. So we coordinated with 326. Sharon was a lot older than me and was not somebody I spent a lot of time around. But I did work with the guy, and I worked with his people. Um, Shabatoni, that was the guy's name. Yeah, Mike Shabatoni, yeah, yeah, Shabatoni and, his fa- and his father. And, right, right, right. Um, one of uh, the, the younger one lasted at three twenty six till a couple of years ago, and then he went left or whatever. I don't know what exactly happened, uh, but yeah, I go back to uh, the days of uh, the days of Tim Hyatt, who ran the uh, United ran the AFSME before uh, Bogato. Uh, a guy named John Campanelli was the president of the AFL CIO in my day. Uh, Karen Peterson's father uh, was the ironworkers guy. Uh, those were the people I ran with back in the 70s and into the 80s. Let me ask you one last thing before we have some fun. Um, the connections connection. Yeah. Um, you know, I my take on that is a little bit different from other people. Like, I am extremely saddened by the poor management, we'll say, or... I mean, there's a little bit of fraud involved, um, and 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 money goes missing, and all of this and stuff. I, but I, I'm ready to I, answer. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I just want to I, I I just want to say that I I it, it it saddens me that these kinds of important services are left to 
um, you know, a very small handful of nonprofits that aren't that are underfunded, that aren't given the proper um, sort of aren't given the proper resources and tools to do the things that Joe and I have talked about. Well, now, specifically, you can give your your connections. Let me speak to that a little bit. When I got out of jail, I got a part-time gig at the Addictions Coalition of Delaware. And Wendell Howe was running it. Wendell Howe was a recovering cocaine person. That was his drug of choice. And he was clean when, when I went to work for him. He had been clean for some time. Weeks into my being there, he lost, he lost his major funding source, and we were down to one funding source. He could no longer, his salary could no longer be sustained, and the board of the Addictions Coalition made him leave, which left me there by myself. <laughs> Weeks in, me and a bookkeeper. And I was able to put that agency onto a minimal footing, but we were never going to really survive. And that's when I invented the homeless newspaper, One Step Away in Our Independence, which is a whole nother show of when I started that paper, how that paper was greatly successful, and how the little bastards that walk up and down with the yellow jackets put us out of business. Um, but that's a, that's a different story. But I was able to get the Addictions Coalition going, but it wasn't going to keep going. I went and saw the lady that was the executive director who I had known for many years. Uh, I won't name names because she... She we, is who she is. She's been in the paper plan. Yeah, no, I, I don't, this this one's not. Uh, everybody knows who we're talking. about. Well, Kathy, I call her Kathy. So I went to Kathy and I said, you know, what would you be interested? And in? I merged the Addictions Coalition into Connections in July of 2012, and I had an employment relationship with Connections for six and a half years. Connections was, in its proper form. A tremendous organization that did a huge amount of, help, of good work for a multitude of people. And yeah, you've got stories on all sides, but when you're in the behavioral health business, you're treating people that have behavioral health issues. And so think in terms of dissatisfied customers that also have issues that might want to have a vendetta. It's going to be a messy uh, Yeah, so there, there are always some angry people out there, even when Connections was doing its job correctly. Uh, and then one thing led to another. They grew faster than they should have. Uh, they got the prison contract, which uh, my buddy's role, who was on the board of directors when we got it, was be careful what you wish for. And that expanded the organization exponentially. Uh, it allowed for poor quality control to start happening. It allowed for decentralization of management. You're in the management business. You know something about an organization that gets too big for itself. And that's essentially what happened, except you were dealing with humans, sick humans that, that have mental health issues or behavioral health issues or developmental issues. And they're living in your facilities and, and they're all these places. And then you feed them every day and you've got all the things that go on and the shrinkage and and f things disappearing, money not, money being misallocated, and then you're giving out a narcotic that's DEA, that's DEA regulated, and when you lose control of managing that correctly, which is what happened, then you're destined for failure. Yeah, and I guess, and and I and I, and I think my, you need to my, look at. There's other organizations around town that don't have those problems. The one that I've most recently been associated with is a well-run organization. Uh, there are multiple other yep. well-run organizations. Michael Kalmbach has a organization that he's associated with. It's a well-run organization. Uh, the the rehab up in Claymont is run by a well-run organization. You know, I don't. I wouldn't want to tar all of the nonprofits with the connections brush. No, not only do I not want. That's not really what I'm looking to do. And connections so, did a hell of a good job. I'm sort of at, looking to say for a to, long time. In a, in, a, in the grander scheme of things, I'm going back to um, you mentioned. Some of the social workers that uh, were working uh, with some of your cohort when you were incarcerated, like they're not the best. Like we're not, we don't look at this whole process from beginning to end. Whether well, it's mental health, whether it's social some, work, some addiction. Of that's the, some of that's the state's problem. And I'm going to tell you straight up: the way behavioral health is 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 organized, and the way the state has made it so that they don't actually do it, they contract with private agencies to do it, and then they don't give these the private agencies enough money to pay a fucking living wage. That's where we get where we are. Correct. If we looked, if we you looked know, at, I this... sat in front of the. the I, I I testified for many years in front of the Joint Finance Committee, uh, both before 
the crash in my life and after the crash in my life, either as chair of the governor's council or as somebody that worked for the connections. And every single time I testified, it was, hey, kids, this ain't enough money. It's never been enough money. So, you know, every, you, you can look at connections and say connections blew it. Yes, they did. And they blew it for a series of reasons, most of which that go back to growing too fast and losing control of, of proper management uh, principles. But all of every nonprofit agency out there, whether they're doing mental health work, whether they're doing developmental disability work, whether they're doing elderly care work, it's all set up the same way. The state isolates itself from the actual delivery of the service and causes these private companies to have to do it. And when they can't do it or afford to do it and can't do it right, the state says, well, we hired you, we gave you money, but not enough. Yeah, It's that simple. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're just contracting it out to whoever, you know, we're, we feel, you know, I, I don't know, what, careful what you wish for again, because the state runs the prisons and, and they're not run that great either. So it's like, well, the, the yeah, they do, but too. they don't run the health care. They right. contract all that out, right. and, you know, just because Connections is not doing it anymore doesn't mean that the company that's doing it now is doing it all that great either. Uh, the, 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 the state runs the, the custodial part. It doesn't run the important part. Right. It doesn't run the treatment areas. It doesn't run the health care. It doesn't run the things that are that take care of the humans inside of the, inside right. of the facilities. It's like, we got great fences, but fuck them if they get sick. Yeah. So this is about the time where sometimes Carl will play a little music. We'll go into some. We'll go into some fun stuff because I want the last question is a political question. Okay. You, I think, per, uh, articulated it perfectly. We have uh, too many cops in Dover who have a completely different agenda than what our agenda is when we try to deal with human beings and make um, make our lives better and make our neighbors' lives better. They don't have that agenda, um, and I think. As you said, somebody like Marie Pinckney, a candidate like that, is going to help rather than a, a cop cabal candidate. Um, and you generally uh, are on the sort of uh, radical sort of uh, side of progress. I, I, I see where you're going. Keep going. Okay, okay. <laughs> but not always. Not always. Not always. Not always. And I'm always very fascinated with like the idiosyncratic sort of like divergences of people's politics because everybody's have them. I have them too. I got it. Let me go. Let me go ahead and go there. Go, go. Because you're, but let, let's you, be honest. You are fascinated with my... You're a big Biden guy. You're fascinated with my support and friendship towards Joe Biden. Uh, fascinated is probably the wrong word, but yes. Maybe disappointed. I don't know what uh, you're... No, right, but um, let me tell you, intrigued, Well, maybe? let me tell you about our relationship. And Joe Biden can come on your show and refute whatever I say. You know, from your lips to his ears. I mean, if you have his number, number, I'll put it in my phone. We've known each other for 50 years pretty much this week. I met him at the end of the winter, the beginning of the spring of 1972. I was 20. He was 29. I was McGovern, and he was running his campaign. If you think about the dynamic of that and go back 50 years, it ain't like we were eating lunch together during that campaign. Right, right. Okay? Yes, it, and I, it, I do not want to infer that, like, you guys are, like, best friends or something. We never were best friends. We, we are friends. And we are friends more through a third party who is former Senator Kaufman, who you may or may not know. I do know Ted Kaufman. Well, I mean, I know who he Ted is. Ted Kaufman is one of Joe's. We're not on speaking terms. Right Ted now. is probably one of Joe's closest friends in life. That's my understanding. Ted Kaufman is a tremendous friend of mine. I have a number. We didn't talk about me getting a pardon, but I got a pardon. And one of the people that wrote a pardon letter for me was Ted Kaufman. So in 72, I have this relationship with Kaufman. Biden's running for president, or for, excuse me, for Senate, and George McGovern's running for president. And I'm the labor guy for McGovern up and down the state. In politics, it wasn't that much different then, except we didn't have cell phones and all that kind of stuff. But basically, you'd go from event to event. Well, if you're representing a presidential campaign, you're going to go to a certain number of events. And it wasn't always me, but it was often me uh, that would be at events, particularly if it was like at the Painters Hall or at the Byron Workers Hall. And I had a lot of interaction with Joe through that. And we had a lot of mutual friends. He went to Archmere. I went to Sally's. He's my sister's age. You know, it's a Wilmington thing, but we weren't that close. But we would go to these events, and Nelia and the babies would be along. And there was more than one occasion that I would hang in the back with Nelia and the kids. 
uh, and more than one occasion, uh, one in particular. You know, the Pol- you've been at the Polish Library the, the, down in down in Browntown, one of those social clubs. Oh things. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, By Saint Hedwig's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, they had their meeting room was upstairs, and they had one of those narrow stairways of an old building to get to it. And I'll, I'll never forget that I carried Nelia up the steps. Uh, not Nelia. Uh, help me. The other one. The little I can't girl. Think of the it. baby. Yeah, I can't. Neil, I didn't carry Nelia. Nelia was, was his wife. Uh, anyway, I carried the baby up up the steps while she was struggling with the with the kit with the boys and the, and the diaper bag. So, I followed Joe around, but in following him around, it was all not sweetness and light. So I'm going to tell you the story. This is the first time I've ever told it with a microphone in front of me. Oh yes, we got exclusive. We were at the Chrysler plant. It was October. I don't know exactly what day in October, so I don't know if it was past my 21st birthday. I was turned 21 in October. Joe was still 29. And we both had got our campaign and Joe's campaign had gotten permission to do a shift change, shake hands, leaflet opportunity there. And there were 3,000 guys coming in and going out of Chrysler on any given afternoon. I took down my McGovern people, which if you're going to a to an industrial plant, and it was the early 70s, you want to take teenage girls. Well, I was just past being a teenager, so I was able to find plenty of young teenage girls in the McGovern campaign. And we went down there, and we were all set up to pass out our stuff. Joe shows up with a small entourage, and he's set up to pass out his stuff. He looks at me like, what the fuck are we both doing here on the same day? And I kind of agreed that maybe we shouldn't have been there on the same day. Poor poor campaign coordination. Paul, make a note of that. But here we are. And, you know, he no more wanted anything to do with too much public 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 uh, association with the McGovern campaign and the man in the moon. And you can see that. But I was young and a little more idealistic, and it always bothered me anyway to do this. So there were two gates, and you're old enough to remember how the plant was configured. Ew. And it was a gate on 896, and then there was a gate down the side. And the big gate was the 896 gate, so Joe set himself posted up there. I took my girls around the side, left some out front, and then set them up and started walking back. Well, by the time I got back, shift changes, you know, thousands of people in, a, in 10 minutes. By the time I get back, my girls were standing off to the side in tears. And Joe was still shaking some hands, and my girls were standing off to the side in tears. So I went over and I said, what's the matter? And one of them says, he, 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 he went to the security person, and he told them that we weren't supposed to be here, and they made us stop. I said, what the fuck? So I went over to Joe, and I very not so politely said, what the fuck? And he said, tough shit or something. And we went round and round for a little while, and I went right there to the side of his head. He's little old-fashioned old fisticuffs, fisticuffs. And, and, and he came back with a, a shot, and somebody in his entourage pulled him back, and cooler heads prevailed, and we went out on our way. But to say that— So you have to support Biden until you die because he punched you in the face? No. no I'm just kidding. We, pa- we patched it up, and then I got in the union business, and I was an official union guy— which in 74 meant that I worked for the Souls campaign for my union for about six weeks before the election. That's where I met the, the Friel family. Yeah, Jim Souls uh, was a uh, professor uh, at the University of Delaware, one of my yeah. uh, and, mentors. And his campaign entourage was I was the labor guy. Eddie Friel was the campaign manager. And a guy named Tom Carper was the treasurer. And Buddy and Kevin Friel were, I don't know what their jobs were, but they were involved in the campaign. So in 78 came Biden's first re-election. Remember, Ted Kaufman's a friend of mine. By that time, we had patched things up. And I was released uh, from the first part of October through the uh, election for Joe's 78 campaign. Um, I'm not – we've had our moments. We've gotten along. I stood in line for five hours for Bo's funeral. And I was glad I did it. Uh, he has sent me some lovely letters uh, over the years. Uh, but our relationship is not a straight line. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess the way I look at it, and, and, and I'm not talking even about your history and relationship, 
with the president. I'm talking about just in general. It's like, I don't know whether that, sh- I, I don't know how much that can come into play depending on what you believe. Like, if you believe that, uh, that the cop cabal and and that and that tough criminal justice measures and more cops on the street is actually making he made a lot of worse. mistakes in that area. Yeah, uh, I guess, he, it, he, and I'm not even just talking about him. I'm just talking about. But the, he's a villain in that area. There's no question. Uh, some yeah. of the shit he did 25 years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I, that, that's that, that's what here's, fascinates me. Here's, is, here's is where the, I'm at with the president is, is, right now. Today, yeah, is a day that I'm kind of glad I supported him because. I don't know how all this crap's going to come out. What what crap? The geopolitical stuff. Oh, okay. I don't know how it's going to come out. But what I do know, what I do know, is the motherfucker has balls. Oh, yeah. I okay? mean, I, like, and, and, no. and, 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 you know, I know that because I actually know the guy. It is an odd feeling when you see somebody on TV that you've known since you were 20 years old. And that you know a little something about how a person thinks. And only a little something, because nobody knows what everybody thinks. But I have some understanding of how he thinks and how he processes. And I feel somewhat comfortable with him being in basically the mess that he's in. Yeah, I mean, I do do know that... By the same token, from, I would from been... a foreign policy standpoint. I mean, he's not. Uh, he, he's a very engaged his, historically. It's something he knows about. But he, something's not going to slip. He, he's not going to get caught slipping on some sort of geopolitical thing because that's been his thing for like thirty years. So if he had I, not run, if he had not run in twenty twenty, I would have moved to Bernie, um, and I would have been perfectly comfortable with that. Yeah. Well, let me, I mean, look, Carl will tell you. Personal relationships and politics, they go hand in hand. Um, you know, and considering the considering the ultimate choice we had, we didn't really have a choice. So it's just just gotta just gotta bite the bullet for me. I think I had a little bit of a choice. I went to Iowa and tried to influence it a little bit. I went uh, to Nevada and I tried to influence it a little bit. Yeah. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I think I had something to do with it. Not a giant amount, but I physically put skin and money in the game. Yeah, well that's the thing. I don't see this this is I guess where I where I'm coming from. Because I've I've made fun of, of several people who went and campaigned for Biden in Iowa. Because at that point, if if you to me I couldn't understand if you had if you had certain beliefs about the economy, about uh, what kind of country we could have, about uh, capitalism and fairness, and you and and then you remember what the political climate was like right at that time, right at Iowa, where uh, Bernie won, Pete said he won, and then we went to went to Vermont, Bernie won again. Uh, and then, like, what, what, why, as you said, I think you said you would have gone, had he not run, you'd have been Bernie, but Bernie had the same politics. Like, like, you, you, yeah. you know what I mean? There was a big gulf in that politics. There's no question. Let me go out to Iowa. You know what I mean? It's, let me try it a different it. way. And, you know, you're not going to agree with me, and that's okay. Okay. Um, a lot of. When you get to be my age and you've lived my life and you know a little bit about it now and it's been interesting to say the least, you develop a practiced cynicism. And my practiced cynicism was that I wanted to have some influence over who was going to be president. And this guy that I've known for all these years that, you know, never once invited me to the vice president's house, just by the way. Um <laughs> <laughs> and your invitation got lost in the my mind. invitation never got sent um i decided to take a little political tourism trip to go to iowa okay what it was something i did Fair enough. i went to iowa for uh dick Gephardt in 2003 and four oh, there you go i did and i spent two months out there uh doing dick Gephardt. you've been in a were you in a like a small town uh, gym caucus room? I was uh, in all of those. I was in a, I, my caucus for Biden was in a place called Lone Tree, Iowa, and my my coffee, coffee was it one tree. It was an interesting little <laughs> joint. It was a casino down the street. Other than that, it was the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And then my caucus in um, in Des Moines was it right in west right in West Des Moines for 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 uh, Gephardt. They did a lot of work for him in Council Bluffs. And a little bit of work for him in uh, Ames, but mostly I was in the Des Moines area for for good uh, 
And I enjoyed Iowa. I enjoyed the whole look and feel of an Iowa caucus. So that was political tourism along with, yes, I really did support him. And yes, I really did, you know, spend a week week or so in Iowa City. Where I really committed to help Biden get nominated was when I doubled down when it looked like he was toast and bought a ticket, went to Las Vegas. <laughs> got smoked again, too. Tough. He got less smoke than he was expected to get smoked. Maybe you're bad luck. Maybe well, you should. I don't when think... then South Carolina Super Tuesday, you didn't go. He was good. But that, that was basically because Obama told everybody what to do. We, you know, the, the reality was that he didn't get smoked in Nevada the way he could have gotten smoked in Nevada. If he'd have got smoked a little bit more in Nevada, Clyburn wouldn't have been able to save him. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's water under the bridge now. I mean, we're talking about little margins of, of, of error, but margins of victory and little things that could have happened one way or the other. I mean, I, I suspect that even if he was, I mean, he he was pretty much blown out. And it just came down to the fact that it couldn't, that couldn't go that way. I mean, if you want to, I mean, you know, it just couldn't go. Clyburn and Obama just engineered it. I mean, which is politics. But I, I mean, you said it before. I, you I wanna, honestly you, believe you, that. You, you want to be in a position to impact impact the result? You know who was in the position to impact the result? Obama, and he did it. Well, I, you know, you can give it to Obama. I, I give a lot to Clyburn. I think he was pretty far, pretty all the way up Clyburn. You're right. The last suck. time I spent any time talking to Joe before he got to be president was at the uh, electrician's hall uh, in uh, North Las Vegas the, the night of the Nevada caucus. And we did chat for a little while, and jet fumes were rolling, and the entourage was ready to get his ass out of there and get him to South Carolina. He was done. And I figured, well, you know, I did my best. It's over. Uh, I went on a helicopter ride the next day with some French people in a small helicopter over the Grand Canyon. See, those things are death traps. Never get in one of those. Then I figured out that I probably could have either died in the helicopter or gotten COVID <laughs> by these people that had just gotten off the plane from Paris. And, you know, within two weeks, we were in COVID. So, you know. Yeah. Well, Joe, I really appreciate you um, you coming in. Uh, is there anything specific that you are doing with uh, with Mimi and with Marie for the – I mean, I, like I said, it'll already be – it'll probably be recorded. People can probably look it I'm up. On the 1 o'clock uh, listening session on Wednesday. Okay. And Kendra McDowell is on the, on the panel. This guy whose name I can't tell you that was at your event is on the panel. I forget who else is on my panel. Cool. Uh, but if there's anything I've done politically in the last couple of years that I'm really proud of, it's – supporting Marie from day one and working my ass off to give her my insight into beating a guy that I've been after for 40 years. I had a grudge, a personal grudge with the pro tem and nothing made me happier than having this tremendous candidate and being able to go out and support a tremendous candidate and send that son of a bitch back to Lewis. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, uh, it was great seeing Marie, um, Saturday night too, because of all she is, of the work that she's doing. She's a star. Yeah, she is incredibly bright. I mean, and we've got several stars. Sarah's a star. Medina's a star. You know, Mimi in her way is a star. But there, there is nobody that is more of a more of what I think is going to be a national force in Delaware. Everybody picks Sarah Sarah McBride, and maybe she will be too. And I think maybe she, they both will. But I think that. Marie Pinckney, 10 years from now, is going to be a household name. I love everything you're saying. Joe, thank you again for coming in. Thanks. I, much, I very much appreciate it. Folks, um, you, did not, you probably did not know you were going to hear a story about uh, the president and Joe, getting a, Joe and Joe getting in a fist fight, Joe v. Joe. Uh, but there you have it. Anything can happen here in the Bunker studio. So you know how to reach us, at Highlands Bunker at Twitter. Uh, Patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. Help us out if you can and you like this type of content. Uh, and as I say always, uh, whether you're in uh, whether you're in Lone Tree, Iowa, or uh, in Las Vegas, or here in the Highlands Bunker, left is best. <laughs>